0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through the Psalms during the summer. The book of Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. They are songs and prayers of God's people in ancient times that have continued to be a source of prayer for God's people up to the present. Ancient Jews regularly prayed the Psalms. Jesus would have grown up praying the Psalms uh, weekly, daily even. In the early days of Christianity, The Desert Mothers and Fathers, who we've learned from quite a bit this year, went out into the wilderness in search of a life of prayer. And the Psalms were part of their daily diet. They meditated on and prayed the Psalms often. And so if you want to learn how to pray, there is hardly a better place to start than the Book of Psalms. It will teach us how to pray. But I'll warn you, learning how to pray is not for the faint of heart. Learning how to pray is not for the faint of heart. The Psalms are brutally honest, and they hold nothing back. You see, religious people, are often tempted to imagine prayer and life with God as some sort of peaceful, zen-like state of transcendence. And occasionally, we may have experiences like that, which are wonderful. But religious, prayerful people are by no means exempt from pain, from challenge, from frustration, from conflict, from anger. And any religion that does not address these experiences is merely a pseudo-religion. But biblical faith is one that intimately knows pain, injustice, warfare, persecution, and crucifixion. So how do we pray when we're angry? This morning, many of the songs we have sung have have mentioned this theme of enemies, right? So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the enemy presses in hard. How do we pray when we are confronted by enemies? How do we pray whenever we are angry? How do we pray in the face of crude injustice? Zen-like, nice religion really has no answer for us to this question. But the Psalms, real prayers from very real life, show us the way. Psalm 35 is one of these angry psalms. It uses all kinds of images to express anger at perceived injustice. There are images from the battlefield, images from the hunt, uh, images from the courtroom. And in each instance, the psalmist cries to God not only to be rescued from these pursuing enemies, but also for God to put these enemies in their place. And so as we read, I want you to watch for these different images that the psalmist uses. I want you to pay attention to the feelings the psalmist expresses And I encourage you also to pay attention to your own feelings and response to the words of this psalm. Do you resonate with them at all? Or do they make you feel uncomfortable? Let's read Psalm 35. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor, arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to me, I am your salvation. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hid their net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. My whole being will exclaim, who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Ruthless witnesses come forward. They question me on things I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good and leave me like one bereaved. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Assailants gathered against me without my knowledge. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from these ravages, my precious life from these lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly Among the throngs, I will praise you. Do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. They do not speak peaceably, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. They sneer at me and say, Aha! Aha! With our own eyes we have seen it. Lord, you have seen this. Do not be silent. Do not be far from me, Lord. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. Vindicate me in your presence. Righteousness, Lord my God, do not let them gloat over me. Do not let them think, aha, just what we wanted, or say we have swallowed him up. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. May those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servant. My tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for these psalms that teach us how to pray. And do not hold back from any human experience. Lord, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, real quick, before we keep going, how are you doing? How does this psalm make you feel? How does this psalm sit with you? My guess is that there are at least two different kinds of reactions to this kind of psalm. Uh, some of you may very well be saying, Finally, someone finally got honest and said what we all really feel. Right? Uh, some of you might be in that camp. You're relieved to find this kind of language in the Bible. Others, though, may feel a bit Uncomfortable. Language like this seems wrong, seems sinful, certainly seems unchristlike. Language like this seems out of place in the Bible. And if that's you, you're not alone. Many throughout history have had this kind of response to these angry Psalms what I want to suggest, and I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else here, what I want to suggest is that if the anger of this psalm makes you uncomfortable, it's because your own anger makes you uncomfortable. We avoid the anger of this psalm because we've gotten so used to avoiding our own anger. We suppress the anger of this psalm because we've gotten so used to suppressing our own anger. But psalms like this show us the importance of not denying, but entering in to anger. And most importantly, bringing it. To God. So as we reflect on this psalm this morning, I really want to consider how it shows us to relate to God, to others, and to ourselves in the midst of anger. How does this psalm show us to relate to God, to others, and to ourselves in the midst of anger? The first thing this psalm shows us is. Being angry and bringing it to God. Being angry and bringing it to God. So really there are two things here. This psalm shows us someone who is angry. And we need to acknowledge that being angry is part of existence. And it's not only part of existence. Being angry is actually part of godliness. Godly people will get angry because God gets angry. Now, anger is not a part of the world as it was meant to be. If the world were as it were meant to be, there would be no cause for anger. Right? But we live in a world where things are not. As they are meant to be. And because the world is not as it is meant to be, there is righteous, godly cause for anger. We live in a world where the rich take advantage of the poor, where the powerful oppress the weak, where evil schemes and plots against righteousness. A world where enemies seek to destroy one another. And because of this, there is cause for anger. In fact, because of these things, it would actually be wrong for us not to become angry. Eugene Peterson writes uh, about psalms like this, that, that anger or hatred when prayed leads us to see a God of justice and a God who is angry about injustice. There's cause to be angry. Karl Marx famously described religion as the opiate of the masses. Have you heard this before? Uh, Religion is merely a drug, right? It just subdues people. It offers them escape from reality, the, the trials of existence. And you know, he may have been right about that to some extent. Because there are certainly ways that people use religion as a substance for escape. Religion is a way to kind of deny reality. But but again, I want to say biblical faith does not seek to subdue or put us to sleep in the world. Quite the opposite. Biblical faith wakes us up to the realities of pain and injustice, and it stirs us to bring these things to God. And this is important, right? This is the next part of it. Being angry is part of reality, but bringing it to God is what this psalm shows us. Because on the opposite side of avoiding anger, which we're often tempted to do, we find idolizing anger, another temptation. Right? Everything becomes about being angry. We're swallowed up with bitterness. Right? I mean, this is the, the world we live in. So, so much of uh, news and headlines and social media is simply primed to provoke outrage. People are addicted to it. Like, there's actually a kind of addiction that our society has to perpetually being angry at one another. And we've only gone deeper and deeper into that as a society over the last several years, right? So uh, uh, on the opposite end of avoiding anger is idolizing and worshiping anger, where our whole existence is consumed with anger and bitterness, which eventually will give way to violence either erupting in physical violence that literally pushes people around and causes physical harm, or a kind of social, mental violence, using words to cut people down and cause harm. But the psalmist, though he gets angry, does not give in to it. The psalmist, though he gets angry, is not consumed by it, but rather brings this anger to God and trusts God to act and make it right. As we have just sung, the battle belongs to the Lord, not to us. And so, yes, we should get angry, but we need to bring this anger to God. Look throughout the psalm. Verse 1, Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. The psalmist acknowledges his anger, but he entrusts it to God. Again, verse 17, How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. He acknowledges his anger, but he entrusts it to God. Verse 24, vindicate me in your righteousness. Lord, my God, do not let them gloat over me. He acknowledges his anger, but he entrusts it to God. Over and over and over again, this psalm shows us how to resist anger avoidance and anger worship by being angry and bringing it to God. Do you think it's okay to bring your anger to God? Or do you feel like you need to clean yourself up when you go to God? Put on, you know, all of your niceness. If that's how we've been taught to pray, we have not learned to truly pray, as the Bible shows us. We're to acknowledge our anger and bring it to God. It's this very principle that Paul references in Ephesians 4.26 when he writes, Be angry and do not sin, right? Be angry, but don't sin. Don't be consumed with it. We bring it to God. We are not called to avoid our anger or deny the things in the world that ought to make us angry. Rather, we are to be angry and bring it to God. So this is how we relate to God in our anger, bringing it to him, entrusting it to him. And so how shall we relate to others in the midst of anger? How do we relate to these enemies? Well, right in the middle of the psalm, we get a glimpse of how this psalmist is relating to these enemies, beginning in verse 13. When they were ill, I put on sackcloth, and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for a friend or a brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my own mother. The psalmist shows care and compassion toward these enemies. When bad happens to them, The psalmist grieves. The psalmist has fasted and and mourned in all the traditional ways that they would in that culture. This is precisely how we are to tend and treat those with whom we are angry, those with who we identify as our enemies. You see, when we are angry with others, When we identify others as our enemies, we have a tendency to vilify them, right? We have a tendency to to press them into a one-dimensional person who's simply evil and wrong. Again, this is the source of so much of our culture's addiction to outrage. People aren't three-dimensional. They're just evil and wrong, those enemies over there. Right, We harden our hearts towards them. We strip them of real personhood. But that is not how we're meant to live or see the world around us. Turning to God, we're meant to keep our hearts soft and learn to recognize the image of God in every single person. Even our enemies. As we turn to God, we may very well begin to recognize that our enemies withhold love because love has been withheld from them. We may learn to recognize and see that they deal in violence because they have only ever been dealt with in violence. As the phrase goes, hurt people, hurt people. And so if we can approach people with compassion, a world of of change might just occur. The answer is not to continue withholding love or or to, to continue dealing out violence toward them, but to offer love freely and compassionately and to become a presence of healing for, yes, even our enemies. But this kind of thing can be costly and is very rarely rewarding. The psalmist has extended compassion and care to to them, but he continues in verse 15, When I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Assailants gathered around me without my knowledge. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked and gnashed their teeth at me. So when misfortune came to them, I mourned. and when it came to me, they rejoiced. Loving our enemies is often unrewarding, frequently met with betrayal, and further vitriol toward us. But this is the way of Jesus. He's full of compassion and yet familiar with betrayal. When Jesus approached Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry, Luke 19 says that he wept because he knew that destruction would one day come to this place. He extended compassion and wept for Jerusalem. Nevertheless, it was the people of Jerusalem who put him to death. At the Last Supper, he shares this meal with Judas. John tells us that he even offers personally Judas a piece of bread. And soon after, Judas would betray him to those who would falsely accuse him and have him crucified. So when Jesus invites us to follow him, he calls us to pick up and carry the cross. This means that as we extend compassion and care to others, we will often be hated and despised for it. In fact, Jesus tells us that this will happen. He promises us that we will be persecuted. In John 15, he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then he goes on and he quotes verse 19 of our psalm. He says, this is to fulfill what is written. They hated me without reason. Precisely what the psalmist has prayed. See, Jesus knew this psalm. He knew Psalm 35. He had prayed it himself in the synagogue, in the temple, with his community. He knew this psalm, and he applied it to his coming death on the cross and the coming persecution of his followers. But this is where the psalm invites some of our own self-reflection. We've seen how it shows us to bring our anger to God and to extend compassion to our enemies. But how does the psalm show us to relate to ourselves and our anger? You see, there's a sentiment that's repeated several times throughout the psalm that invites us to self-reflection. Verse 7 says, They hid their net for me without cause, and without cause they dug a pit for me. Verse 19, which we've just heard Jesus quote, says, Do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. Time and time again, the psalmist insists that these troubles that have come to him are without cause and without reason. When we enter into conflict, into trouble, whenever anger begins to well up within us at these moments, we must ask the question, is there cause for this? Is there cause for this? We must reflect. Is this truly injustice being brought upon me? Or is there something for me to repent of in this situation? When we bring our anger to God, he meets us with compassion, but he may also meet us with correction. It takes a great deal of self-reflection to be able to honestly say, I'm completely innocent in this situation. This has all happened to me without cause. It takes a lot of self-reflection to be able to actually say something like that. Rarely would something like that ever be true of any one of us. Because we have often contributed a great deal to our own troubles. We've often contributed a great deal to our own conflicts, right? The Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says of this psalm, it will be possible to pray this way only if we can truly claim, as the psalm does, to have lived with integrity in one's relationships with other people and specifically with one's attackers. The psalm thus drives us to examine ourselves before we dare pray this way. So before we pray for righteous vindication, we must pray humble confession. And as we pray for God to deliver us from our enemies, that often includes God delivering us from ourselves. As we pray for God to defeat our enemies, that often includes God defeating parts of ourselves. Our anger must bring us to a place of humble confession. When we encounter these angry enemy psalms, It's not a bad idea to ask the question, is there anyone who might be praying this about me? Is there anyone to whom I have been an enemy? Because then we're in a place of confession. And it's then and only then that we are ready, as in verse 3, to hear God say, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. Not vengeance, not revenge. The Lord is our salvation. You see, Jesus really is the only one who can truly pray this prayer as one fully free from sin and guilt. As we heard in John 15, Jesus applied this psalm to his coming experience of betrayal, crucifixion, and death. This psalm truly not only applies to Jesus' death, but the truest enemy within this psalm is death itself. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Elsewhere, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. The enemy to be destroyed is not other people but death itself and the kingdom of death that reigns in this world. And this is precisely what Jesus went to the cross to face. He went to the cross to face death itself and to confront the kingdom of death. And so Jesus applies this psalm to his death And truly, the enemy of this psalm is death itself. Look back at verses 7 and on. The psalmist says, Since they hid their net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. And then he twists it around and says, May the net that they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. What does it look like for death to fall into its own pit? What does it look like for death instead of bringing death upon others to bring death upon its own self? This is exactly the image we have in Revelation. Chapter 20, where we're told that death and Hades will be thrown into a lake of fire. Revelation shows us the day when death will fall into its own pit. When death itself will die. And there is a word that we have for the death of death. It's resurrection. When death dies, we have resurrection. And that is exactly what came as Jesus went to the cross. As Jesus went to the cross, the enemy to be confronted was death itself and the kingdom of death that reigned in this world. And Jesus would see that kingdom overthrown. Jesus would see death itself put to death, and the beginning of that is his own resurrection. This is the promise that we all have. And this leads us to rejoicing. It's exactly where the psalm goes. As it continues, verse 9, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. You rescue the one who was crucified from death. and You bring about resurrection. Again, the psalm rejoices in verse 18. I will give thanks to you in the great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. And finally, the psalm ends with words of praise. The Lord be exalted, who delights in the well-being of his servant. And the psalmist concludes with confidence. My tongue will proclaim your righteousness your praises all day long. Jesus has destroyed the ultimate enemy. and We await the day for its final destruction. The kingdom of death has been overthrown, and we continue to pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, with confidence, we too can join the psalmist praying, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. Truly, God does speak to his people. I am your salvation. Amen.